This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. You know, I, I, I look at the calendar and I see the springs here, right on Tuesday. But then I look outside, Ron, you can understand this. Very stif- different story, or maybe the same old story here in New England. I mean, another Nor'easter this week, more snow more power outages, and more school cancellations. I know. It's unbelievable. My, my, my son did his research and found out that uh, in Massachusetts, the law, under Massachusetts law, they cannot make you stay in school after the 1st of July. So no matter what, he's walking on June 30th. So he's, uh, How about the 1st of August? Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. We're supposed to get 6 to 10. And it's yeah. just, birds yeah. are singing this afternoon, but they're in for a rude awakening. Hey, Goose, uh, nothing going on down in Dallas, I suspect. I mean, no snow, no power outages, no free agents. Uh, but you do have a revised... It, well, it doesn't snow in the 70s down here. <laughs> yeah, but but you do have a revised catch rule, Goose. Revised yes, catch sir. rule. I bet that brings a little sunshine to Des Bryant and those Cowboy fans, right? Well, unless the NFL is going to roll back time to January 2015, <laughs> award the Cowboys their victory of the Packers, and replay the rest of the postseason from that point, there is no joy in Dallas. Yeah, I understand. They should that. do that. Well, that would be great. That would be good. And they should. here's the way they should do it. They could turn into a moneymaker. They'd have, they'd have a bunch of kids would play the games on video, you know, on the little, like, Madden game, and that would determine the whole thing, and they would change it rather than using the players. That would be great because that's yeah, what they're headed to. Be it. School would have to be in Ron, which means they couldn't do it. <laughs> um, anyway, the sun always shines here at the Talk of Fame Network. Yes, it does, and today it's going to shine on someone who is at the front end of the free agent movement when we sit down with Hall of Fame linebacker Kevin Green. We're also going to celebrate the football history of the University of Florida. So our pre-draft series on collegiate programs continues. And we talk with Hall of Famer and former Gator Jack Youngblood. We'll also hear from one of the most powerful and influential members in the NFL, that is, before he retired earlier this year, and that's former NFL Vice President of Communications, Greg Aiello. But that's not all. Also joining us is Hall of Fame voter Jeff Hobson with his take on the greatest Cincinnati Bengal not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And that's going to be a tough call, Goose. Ken Anderson, Ken Riley, Willie Anderson, what do you think? Yeah, you can, uh, you can definitely keep Willie Anderson in that discussion, but, but certainly Anderson and Riley both deserve to have bust in Canton by now. Both are worth yeah. it. be interested to hear what he has to say. Well, anyway, we've got a lot to get to, and we've got plenty of time to do it. So, guys, let's get started. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. As most of you know, Case Keenum signed with the Denver Broncos and should be their starting quarterback when they open the 2018 season. But as I said, you probably know that. But what you might not know is that he couldn't keep his number when he switched teams. And Goose has a good reason. Yeah, unless John Elway decides to come out of retirement, and he probably thought about it a few times last season. <laughs> no one will ever wear number seven for the Broncos again. You are correct, sir. Yeah, so that will be Case Keenum in the number four jersey for Denver. Now, Ron, if he were going to Green Bay or the Boston Bruins, that might be an issue. But in Denver, eh, not so much. Uh, no, uh, we uh, a problem if you went to the Yankees, too, of course, with Lou Gehrig, your friend. I think you covered yeah, Lou Gehrig, friend. didn't you? Yeah, but uh, Columbia University. But number four is pretty, you know, when the greatest number four in your history is Ricky Duncan 
a punter in 1967 <laughs> through 69, uh, you know, you're in pretty good shape. Now, I will say this. John Elway is praying that Ricky Duncan won't still be the best guy to wear at number four two years from now. Years, they all how, far get fired. Back did, how far back did you have to go to find Ricky Duncan's 1967. Wow. Punted far, punted deep. Ricky Duncan. Now he's got his own donut place. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, hey, um, exactly. you know, uh, Joe Thomas didn't wear number four, but he wore number 73, and he wore it for the Cleveland Browns, and he did it well for 11 seasons. I mention that because uh, Joe Thomas retired last week. And, phew, Goose, what a career. I mean, 10 Pro Bowls. Nine All-Pro teams and 10,363 consecutive snaps without an interruption. I, I don't have to ask if he's going to the Hall of Fame. We know that. What I do want to ask, and I'll start with you, Goose, is where does he rank among the all-time great left tackles? Well, like it or not, team success is part of the Hall of Fame equation. You know, almost 69% of all Hall of Famers wear championship ranks. Not only did Joe Thomas not win a championship, he never even lined up in a playoff game. Art Shell, Gary Zimmerman, Jonathan Ogden, and Orlando Pace all have rings. Walter Jones reached the Super Bowl, as did Anthony Munoz. There's your competition for Joe Thomas, and he's not in the top half of that group in my book. That doesn't mean he's not a Hall of Famer. I, I didn't even mention Willie Rolfe, who is a Hall of Famer. But when you're talking about the best left tackles of all time, start with Anthony Munoz and work your way down the list. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with uh, Goose. You know, look, uh, we all know he's a great player. Uh, but, you know, if you don't get to play in the biggest games against the best competition when the most is on the line, uh, you know, it's just it's not your fault, but it does work against you because those are the games that say so much about how great you really are because you're playing against the best guys. You're playing Reggie White in the highest profile and highest stress situation. How do you perform them? You know, you're okay, you're blocking, you know, whomever, Reggie White on October 12th. Okay, well, maybe yeah. Reggie White's just thinking, well, Halloween will be coming pretty soon. <laughs> no, he's not that it. But it is, you're blocking him in the Super Bowl or in the uh, conference championship game, and that's different. And like Goose pointed out, uh, Jim Parker did that. Uh, Archell did that. Uh, Munoz did that uh, at a really high level in the most high-stress situations right. in, in but, yeah. but, guys, why is it fair to penalize a great player for a bad team? He got, he got on a bad team. Well, I don't think you penalize him. I just think you're saying, we don't know. I'm not saying that he would break down and fall down to his knees and give up three sacks like Max Lane did to Rich White in the Super Bowl and get Bledsoe killed. But he wasn't there, so you can't extrapolate what he would have done either. You know, you know what these other guys did in those most difficult of circumstances. They right. shut out uh, Jim Marshall, as Shell did. and They played, uh, you know, Parker shut out everybody. Um, what he would have done, we'll never know, unfortunately. Kusa, interesting status on this guy. <laughs> Speaking of uh, lack of success, he never started a season 1-0. and oh. And, of course, <laughs> I mean, that can happen when you play for a team that won one game the past two seasons, but never started a season. <laughs> well, Joe Thomas played 180 career games, and his team lost 128 of them. I bet there are a lot of 0-2s, 0-3s, and 0-4s in there, as well as all those 0-1s. Yeah, wow. Um, Speaking of great people uh, or great players or or figures in this league, I I don't want to miss this opportunity to recognize another, I'd say, giant of the league, and and that's former Saints owner Tom Benson. And as you know, he died last week at the age of 90. Um, He did a lot of good things for the Saints and for the city of New Orleans, and, and Ron, uh, and that's including overseeing their first Super Bowl victory and keeping the team in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. I mean, those are significant events. 
Well, they are, and I don't want to minimize that, and uh, uh, especially you know at the moment of his passing. But I don't want to get too giddy and gay either. You know, uh, uh, he did some good things, but in fairness, he also shook down the city of New Orleans uh, by threatening to go to San Antonio to get them to pump a ton of uh, millions of dollars to refurbish the Superdome at a time that the city was parts of it was still half underwater, and in some cases, totally underwater. So. Uh, you know, he did come back, no question about that, and, and he he certainly uh, had the spirit of the city uh, when you would see him dancing around with his parasol and all that after a uh, right. victory. But, you know, he also was a pretty good shakedown artist when uh, uh, in a most difficult moment, and, and I think that uh, is something that we shouldn't forget either. Hey, Coos, what, what's his legacy? How do you remember him? Yeah, I agree with Ron. Um, the fact that he kept the team in New Orleans. You know, there was buzz in Texas that when Katrina forced Saints to move to San Antonio, that that's Tom Benson's home base. The team was going to wind up staying there. They didn't. They returned to New Orleans. He got his deal with the Dome. And, and that's really where they belonged. There had been a void in this league if, if the NFL was not in New Orleans. So bottom line, he, he, my, his legacy in my mind is the fact he did bring the team back to New Orleans. Okay, uh, Goose, also the usual question here, but he has a stadium named after him in Canton. I mean, mostly because he donated $11 million towards its renovation, but he has one. Will he ever have his name inside the hall as an owner made, well, let's say, a significant contribution to the NFL or to Canton? I mean, I know his name has never been on the short list of contributors, and you are on, you and I are on that, uh, that committee. But I wonder if this might get people to start thinking about more about Tom Benson. His name will get into the discussion because of this, but again right. – Bud Adams, Pat Bowen, Robert Kraft, they're all sitting there. They've been on the list. So he moves in as essentially the fourth guy in that list. Yeah, and Gil Brand as well. Well, that's the signal that we're going to hear about someone else associated with the Hall, and not because he's in it, but because our Ron Borges would like to have his case discussed. He wrote about him this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, and he's here to make his case again for a guy. And, Ron, I love this because it's a guy whose autograph I got when he was in Michigan State. True story. When he was, really? When I was a kid. I got a story. Yeah, cool. I got his autograph. It's still upstairs. Love it. And, and anyway, how about telling us more about George Sames because I want to hear it. Well, George Sames played safety in a way that made uh, all his Buffalo Bills and later Denver Broncos teammates feel uh, safe, frankly. If he was behind you, the man in front of you was going to end up on the ground. Uh, his old cornerback teammate, Booker Eggson, said at the time of George's death uh, five years ago, George Sainz was one of the surest tacklers I ever saw. If he got his hands on you, more than likely you were going to go down. Well, that's the safety's ultimate job. He was so adept at it that when the American Football League's all-time team was named after the end of the league's 10-year run in 1970, he was selected a starting safety along with the Chiefs' Johnny Robinson. Only one member of that secondary, Willie Brown, the great Willie Brown, I might add, has been elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. An injustice that remains difficult to fathom 48 years later. Sames was a consensus All-American fullback and defensive back at Michigan State in 1962. He was drafted by both the Rams and the Chiefs. Uh, but such was the fierceness of the rivalry for players between the two leagues in those days that the AFL didn't give a damn who signed a guy as long as the NFL didn't. And that's how George Sames became the Bills' defender of last resort for seven years on one of the best defensive teams in AFL history. He was an immediate starter as a rookie in 1963 and an anchor of Buffalo's teams that won the AFL championships in 64 and 65. If he had a deficiency, it was that he often proved Al Davis's old saying that about defensive backs, which was, if they could catch, they'd be playing offense. Well, in Sames' case, he was probably right, even though he had a career-high six interceptions in that 1964 season, which is first, his first All-AFL year. Uh, Booker Register recalled that they used to kid him about it and say if he had great hands uh, with his eyesight and intelligence, he would have had 50 or 60 interceptions. And then he always threw in, well, at least he knocked the ball down. 
<laughs> the fact of the matter is, he knocked a lot of people down, as well as a lot of footballs. He was a sure tackler. He had 22 interceptions in only 121 games. And his status alongside Johnny Robinson as one of the AFL's two greatest safeties uh, really uh, was enough to convince voters to induct him uh, into the Bills Silver Anniversary team. And quite frankly, his name should at least be debated one time at least by the senior committee. It has yet to be, but hopefully he'll get his moment. Hey, Clark, what do Ron and I have in common? We both love the Spartans. <laughs> so do I. I got Spartacus. your guy's autograph. I don't know, Ron. The more I hear these AFL guys, I mean it, the more I'm convinced they get shortchanged. Oh, they did. Anyway, they did. anyway we're, we're going to go to break. When we return, we'll hear more about Tom Benson from former NFL VP Greg Aiello. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Past and present NFL employees got together in New York City last week to honor our next guest, and they should have, because there are a few people who have been more influential or indispensable than Greg Aiello. And honestly, I should know, my wife worked for him, with him, for 15 or 16 years, and the league's former VP of communication, Greg, last month retired from the NFL office after 28 years and the NFL period after 39 years. And he's here today to give us a view of the league from the outside looking in. So, Greg, congratulations on your career and welcome to the other side. Thank you, Clark. I appreciate it uh, and I appreciate the invitation to join you guys. You got it. Um, well, first of all, obvious question. How are you adjusting to life without 18-hour days, reporters demanding <laughs> league responses and texts in the middle of the night? How are you adjusting to that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a different world. It's uh, Life is a lot slower pace right now. <laughs> but uh, it, so it's a matter of, you know, scheduling myself instead of having other people schedule things for me. So uh, it, yeah. it's a big adjustment, and there's a lot of things I already miss, but a lot of things I don't miss. But uh, it's just, you know, it's a transition. It's it's part of uh, part of life. I'm... Glad I'm, I've got my help, and uh, I can still do some things, enjoy some things, and so I'm getting on with it. Well, speaking of things that you do or do not miss, I'm sure you don't miss those midnight texts. But as I said, <laughs> um, you were everywhere the NFL was, and, and for decades. I mean, owners' meetings, Super Bowls, drafts, labor negotiations, you name it, you were every there, everywhere. What do you miss most about that experience? What do you miss most? Well, uh, probably, you know, the action to some extent, although it can drive you crazy. You know, it's, it's just being part of something that big, the NFL, and especially being part of the big events with Super Bowls and, the, and um, you know, the drafts and all, all, of, all those big events and just being part of putting them together and seeing them go well uh, most of the time um, uh, was exciting. And uh, I certainly uh, miss that, you know, miss, miss the action to some extent. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't. Uh, it was time. It was time to move on. You can't do that for uh, forever. And uh, I don't miss the uh, playing defense and cleaning up a lot of messes. And with the technology today, you know, having to deal almost twenty four seven with with issues and the, the stress and that sort of thing. So you know, that's a relief, and it's time for the next generation to step up. And that's what always happens. And that's what we're seeing now. So, so Greg, you got three decades essentially in the NFL. Office of Park Avenue, you've seen all the commissioners, all the coaches, all the owners. One of them just passed away, Tom Benson. What What is the yeah. legacy of Tom Benson? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I think that uh, one thing that occurred to me about him is that he just cared 
he cared so much about a lot of a lot of important things. You know, the Saints obviously. Uh, Sean Payton spoke so well about it, or I guess he wrote a piece about it, uh, about how much he cared about uh, his team and the people, and obviously his city, uh, New Orleans, and he did so much for the city between the Saints and uh, bringing the getting helping the team and the city come back from Katrina. He steps up and and owns the basketball team. But he also cared very much about the league. That's why he was so involved in league matters, chairman of the finance committee for so many years, helping Paul Tagliabue, Roger Goodell. And what he did for the Hall of Fame has been is extraordinary. Uh, so he really he really cared, and and, um, and he did it with a lot of integrity and a lot of joy. You know, the, the lasting image I think people will have of him is him, you know, dancing around after a Saints victory with that parasol and with so much joy for, you know, for the fans and the players. And, and so, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's how we'll remember Tom Benson. Greg, what, what are your memories of Katrina? It had to be chaotic in league office with the Saints relocating. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, you know, it, was just, it just felt horrible for what was going on down there. And what could we do to, to help out? Uh, you remember we had to reschedule a game. We had, that, we had the game at uh, – their home game against the Giants uh, at, uh, I guess it was still Giants Stadium at that point. Uh, and um, I was at that game, and it was just, you know, it was just bizarre. President Bush was there, and they're on the field, getting in the middle. They wound up, we had a whole mass of people in the middle of, uh, turn out the Saints uh, warm-ups, and the team was getting upset. And it was just, it was crazy. But uh, but Paul Tagliabue, uh uh, really stepped up and, and uh, worked with the Saints and Tom Benson to to do everything possible to keep the Saints there, which is what Mr. Benson wanted to do. He had to certainly prepare for other options because who knew what was going to happen to the city. And uh, but then that year later, when the, when the team came back and that, that great uh, victory they had over the Falcons, first game back, and Steve Gleason with the block punt, uh, it, it was. Uh, it was a great thing to to be part of after it came back, but there was a lot of work to get there, including the tell we had a telephone or remember to raise money and also there was a it was a hectic time. It was one of many many crisis quote unquote crisis situations that we had to uh, deal with through the years. Well, Greg, I know that you always look forward to my phone calls when I used to call you because I always had the softball <laughs> questions lined up for you. But uh, uh, so, that, but I'm going to come with the. You were, you were no you're no different, Ron. Anyone, anybody else? <laughs> everyone's doing their everyone's doing their job. I I understood that. But go ahead. Well, I'm going to come with a hard one here. Which okay. was a harder act to follow, Joe Brown in the NFL <laughs> office or Goose at UPI? Yeah, yeah, no, that was good. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the uh, uh, goose for sure. <laughs> uh, goose uh, opened the door for me to to get where I am. Not that he did it on purpose, but uh, we were both at UPI. Uh, he was there first. This is '76, and then uh, Rick, uh, you went to Kansas City, right? Yep. And uh, Rick covered the the cow. I mean, the Cowboys covered the uh, Giants and the NFL. So I was assigned when when Rick left. I was assigned that uh, beat for two years, and uh, that's what first sparked the thought. This, that was my first time around the NFL, and it sparked the thought of you know, I might be interested in working inside the league instead of covering it from the outside. 
I was impressed with how it was run and et cetera, et cetera. And, and I just, then it was right place, right time after the 78 season, early in 79, after I covered the, the Wellington Tim Mara brouhaha that led <laughs> George Young becoming general manager and Perkins, the Ray Perkins family head coach. After that, I called a guy in the league office and found out there was this opening in Dallas on the PR staff. And I called, and one thing led to another. Right, and I was offered the job. Had to make a decision. It wasn't an easy decision, but decided to go down there and uh, give it a try. What? Uh, uh, that's interesting. What was it that that sort of led you to make that uh, shift? You know, were you not uh, liking the reporting side of it so much, or was it just that this thing was kind of really intriguing and you didn't? It was just uh, intriguing. I'd never thought about it. And uh, just to be, you know, part. I mean, I grew up play, like we all did, grew up playing sports, being part of a team. I mean, it was not uh, investigative reporting was, was not necessarily my calling, but just I love sports and being around sports and being part of a team. So the idea of being part of a team and using the skills I had on the inside, rather than covering it from the outside, it was just an interesting thing. Like I said, it was it was right time, right place. I made a phone call, and 99 out of 100 times, it's going to lead to nothing. This one, you know, led to something, and then I had to make a decision. And now it's 39 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out pretty good. <laughs> Worked out pretty well. That's right. Yeah, we're speaking with Greg Aiello, the NFL's former VP of Media Relations on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Greg, we have the NFL draft coming up next month, as I'm sure you know. Um, I'm sure also that you have a million draft stories, either from the league office or from your days with the Dallas Cowboys. Any favorites? Yeah. Well, my favorite one was, was my first one. It was, it was 79, I guess it was April of 79, late April. So I'm about three weeks into the job. And, um, and so I'm uh, in the draft room. The Cowboys, you know, boards lined up. And, you know, from Gil Brandt, the, you know, the Cowboys system, uh, and ahead of its time at that point, I think, in a lot of ways, was it lined up all the players who were the best players. And whoever was at the top of the board, regardless of position, that's who, under the Cowboys system, they were supposed to take, and they normally did take. So here we are. Uh, we're in the third round, and uh, the name at the top of the board is Joe Montana. And I'm a Notre Dame grad. And uh, so I had an interest in, in him, and, oh, Joe Montana, what, what are we going to do? And um, the system said, take Montana, but Tom, I distinctly remember Tom Landry saying, well, we've got three. We have three quarterbacks better than him. I don't know what, you know, and he was talking about Roger Staubach, who was you know, 37, but, and he was about to head into his final season, although no one knew. But he was a young 37 because uh, he spent four years in the Navy, and had only played uh, 10 or 11 years at that point. So had uh, Roger Staubach, Danny White was the backup, and the third quarterback was Glenn Carano, who is now uh, most famous uh, for being, more famous for being uh, Gina Carano's father, <laughs> right. MMA, former MMA champion. But Glenn was the second round. He was a talented guy. He was a second-round draft race in 77, and he hadn't gotten a chance to play. They didn't really know what they had other than they had invested a second-round draft choice in Glenn Carano. So they uh, bucked their own system, or we bucked our own system, didn't take Montana, and the next guy up was Doug Cosby, which turned out to be a, a very good pick uh, in, in terms of he's a very good player. And ironically, in the, in the famous catch game that, kind of really made or started the trajectory of Joe Montana's career and started the downward trajectory of Danny White's. Well, 
In the fourth quarter, Doug Cosby caught a 21-yard touchdown pass uh, from Danny White to put us up 27-21 and look like maybe we're going to win. But then we know what happened after that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for the time. This has been a great thing. And, and thanks for your help and cooperation over the years. Really mean it. Absolutely, Clark. Thanks for having me. And uh, if you guys need anything, let me know. I'll be following along. And uh, and do what you can to get Paul Tagliabue in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> there you go. There you Thanks go. So Keep much, on Greg. plugging. I'll leave you with that. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. Thanks, Thanks Greg. Greg. That was former NFL VP of Communications, Greg Aiello. Up next, Hall of Famer Jack Youngblood. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you no doubt know, our next guest, Jack Youngblood, is one of the best pass rushers in NFL history. His 151 and a half career sacks placed him fifth on the NFL's all-time list and earned him a bust in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But his 29 sacks before that? At the University of Florida, well, they earned him a plaque in the College Football Hall of Fame, a first-round NFL draft selection by the L.A. Rams, and a seat here today to talk about his career at both Florida and with those Rams. Jack Youngblood, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. I, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out where the half came from. <laughs> <laughs> I, I that, that wasn't part of the deal. I don't. <laughs> when you find it, get in touch with the hall, would you please? <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Give me a little correction here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jack, we're spotlighting the top college producers of NFL talent this week. We're focusing on the Gators of Florida. Uh, they've had 47 first-round draft picks, and you were one of them. You were a Florida kid from Monticello, which is just down the road from Tallahassee and Florida State. So how and why did you pick the University of Florida? Well, first of all, I, I wanted to go to Tallahassee. I really did, you know, because they were, you know, in the backyard, basically. And, and I felt that, you know, I was kind of a – I followed them a little bit. I, I didn't know anything about the University of Florida. And – it was all, guys, it was, it really was all out of the blue. I had no idea that, that anybody, any, any scout from the University of Florida was, was looking at, uh, at our, you know, our championship little football team there in, in, uh, Monticello, Florida. And we, we win the championship. We're on the, we're on the foot field. Celebrating, I got my little girlfriend under my arm, and a gentleman grabbed me by the elbow, and I turned and looked. I've never seen this man in my life, and he goes, "Son, how would you like to play for the University of Florida?" And I said, "Let me think about that." Yes, sir. (laughs) 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 That was. I'm, I'm telling you that there wasn't any hype, there wasn't any ESPN, there, none of that went on. In 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 my 
in my career. <laughs> who was who the guy, Jack? Who was the guy? Uh, it was actually it was actually the the, uh, the baseball coach for the University of Florida at that time. They mm-hmm. you know they had to they had to do two or three jobs mm-hmm. back in mm-hmm. back in the you know in the sixties, and so he had the recruiting uh, for the championship games in uh, in North Florida. <laughs> coach Ford. Interesting. Wow. Well, how did your four years in Florida uh, prepare you for an NFL uh, career, and certainly in your case, a Hall of Fame career? It didn't. (laughs) 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 No, no. (laughs) Monticello, Florida, is not is not anything like Los Angeles, California. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking about country come to town. I, I, I had no idea what I was getting into, and uh, but it was it, you know those four years at the University of Florida were were absolutely probably if you look back at all of them for the for the best years of your life. Hmm. You know it's it's an experience you're leaving home you you're on your own you think you know at at eighteen. 17, 18 years old, that you're, you know, you're, you're a grown man. You know what you're doing? No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. But uh, it was, it, it was a life changing event. Uh, I'm flying, I'm flying into, into LA, uh, and of course, you know, you know the. I had no idea that I was going to be a first round draft choice. I mean, I, I can't. I, I can remember one scout, and it was the. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name now because I've been hitting the head too many times. But <laughs> uh, the the scout from Dallas, he came. He came in a couple of times, and he, he ran me in the forty and did a little athletic stuff out there on the field and that type of thing. And then he would take me. We'd go back into the locker room, and he'd. You know, he'd put you put you on the on the on the scale, and he would weigh you, and he would then see how tall you were. Every time, twice I can remember it. He, I was on the scale, and and he pulled that pull the, uh, the the measure down, and he'd go six two and a half, and I'd go I'd step off. I'd go no 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 I'm six four. And, and I'd get back on the scale, and he'd put it down again, and he'd go, "Okay, six three. No, no, <laughs> no, it's not." <laughs> he wanted, and I realized afterwards, he wanted to see my reaction. He wanted to see how I responded to that, huh. and, <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. And, 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 and in fact, several years later, we. We were at some some event together, and he and, and I and I approached him about that, and he laughed. He said, "I just needed to see how you're gonna, you know, how you're gonna deal with that." <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Jack, Jack, speaking of that life changing event at the University of Florida, I look back at your career, and I'm looking at some of these games. You had a five sack game against FSU. You had nine tackles and a forced fumble in the Gator Bowl upset of Tennessee. And I think that was 
From what I remember, that was Coach Ray Graves' final game. Uh, anyway, it was. Um, it was. You were you were an Outland Trophy finalist. You're also the SEC Lineman of the Year in 1970. A lot of stuff there. Um, so, what was your favorite memory from your college career, Florida? This is going to sound crazy, but I mean, the, you, you, it's for, from from me recalling play after play uh, in, in whatever ball game over the course of you know four years. Uh, I, I, I played each individual play and put it in, and put the next next one ahead. I never looked. I never looked back and didn't didn't look forward. I looked at the play that was ahead of me. And I do remember though in Florida State, and we're we're up there, and we're we're winning, and. They're, they had cheerleaders on our sideline, right in front of their student, you know, you know uh, students in the stadium there. And <laughs> so I grabbed it, and she's she's doing her little cheerleader thing and all that. I run up, grab her by the by the hand. We jump up on the on our on our bench, and I start cheering with her. <laughs> 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 I caught a little grief about that one. <laughs> I bet. I bet. From the cheerleader or from the fans? From no. For, from the from your teammates. And the players. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jack, you played in the 1979 playoffs, including the Super Bowl with a fractured leg, which stamped you as one of the most mentally and physically tough players in football history. What went into that decision to decide to play? I was the captain. I was the captain. I was the leader of the, of the football team, and I was gonna, I was gonna do everything I possibly could within within my power and ability to to go on that field and to lead my guys and and to and to try and and win a, win a football game. It was it, it wasn't about the, the pain, you know. The pain, you know, it's there, there's there's pain in every every snap just about it was about the leadership aspect and and what my responsibility was you know jack you won't remember this but i was working on the west coast in 1979 up in san francisco and i came down and covered that game and uh, was, i was in those days you actually could talk to players before the you know <laughs> during the week and i went up to you i was a young reporter i'd only been a couple years and and I had everybody talk about how you're going to play with a broken leg. And I said to you, you're not really going to play with a broken leg, are you? And I'm not kidding you. You turned and looked to me like I had broken out of an insane asylum. Like, you know, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to play in the game. And you just went into this long lecture on why you had to play and, and why, of course, you were going to play. It was fascinating. You know, you know guys, we had, uh, we had the very best medical staff in the in the country at that point in time. And they did everything they possibly could to keep us on the field. And to this day, very day, we, we, we've lost Dr. Curlin and, and Clarence Shields was there and Toby Friedman was our internist. Uh, and those guys, those guys loved us like we were their children. And they literally, they literally did everything they possibly could 
me prepared to play, to go and play that, those 60 minutes. Jack, speaking of that, and we're speaking with Hall of Famer Jack Youngblood on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at talkoffamenet. And, Jack, speaking of that, um, you know, I understand why, why you played in the playoffs. I, mean, I don't know how you did it. You played with a fractured leg, but I understand that. But what I don't understand is <laughs> that's not where it stopped. I mean, I didn't know until we, spoke to Arthur, until we talked to Arthur J. Paris last year that in addition to that Super Bowl – you also played the following week in the Pro Bowl with that broken leg. I mean, in the big picture, that game's sort of meaningless. So, why did you play there? I wasn't going to miss the party. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I've uh, I've come through fourteen ball games, three playoff games, and <laughs> and we lose, and I'm and I'm mad, and <laughs> and I'm going, I'm going to Hawaii. We're gonna be going over to and have a mai tai. <laughs> hey Jack, you, you didn't miss a game in your first thirteen season. You know, set an NFL record for defense fans with one hundred eighty-four consecutive starts. You finally set out a game with a ruptured disc in your lower back late in the eighty-four season, but returned the following week to play the season finale and subsequently the playoffs. So, what's the difference between pain and injury? That's a that's an individual uh, perspective there, uh, and, and pain pain is one thing. Uh, an injury is when when the parts don't work, and the knee goes out, the medial collateral goes out, the uh, uh, the L five F one is is busted. And it is painful, but still you have you have the ability to 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 be an athlete. And you know, I that that's there there again. It goes back to what was my responsibility as the captain of the football team. Hey, Jack, we're going to have to run, but thanks so much for the time. You know what? You you didn't want to miss the party at the Pro Bowl. We didn't want to miss the party here, and we didn't. That was fun. <laughs> that was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you Jack. so much, guys. Thanks, Anytime. Jack. You know that. Thank you. You got it. That was Hall of Famer Jack Youngblood. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time, so Robert, that's our producer, Robert Harris, Jr. Robert, you know what to do. That's the two-minute drill. That's the signal that we're on to the two-minute drill. Ron, you have it this week, so let's get going. Okay, guys. Uh, Concerning his jovial retirement press conference, was Cleveland's retiring left tackle Joe Thomas or Danny Thomas? Hey, the joke was on his employer. Thomas is escaping the worst team in football. Everyone else at the party has to stay. Ron, more like Dave Thomas, founder of Wendy's. Where's the beef? (laughs) Kirk Cousins signed a three-year deal with the Vikings worth $84 million, fully guaranteed. Who got the better of it? Cousins or the Vikings? The Vikings. You can never go wrong betting on a Spartan unless you're betting on a Spartan <laughs> basketball team. Uh, 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 uh. Cousins. Money's in the bank. <laughs> uh, does that deal make Cousins a first ballot contract Hall of Famer? Like Sammy Ball, Red Grange, and Brocko Nagurski, he becomes a charter member of such a hall. Uh, makes his agent a lifetime member of Mensa. <laughs> the Jets just trade a load of high draft picks to move up three slots in the draft to number three. Do they know what they're doing, or did they panic? They know what they're doing. They need a quarterback, and there are three of them at the top. They'll get one of them. <laughs> 
Please, Ron. It's the Jets. Next question. <laughs> Speaking of which, right after making that trade, they signed Teddy Bridgewater for $6 million one-year deal, adding him to a field of four other veteran quarterbacks that included recently re-signed Josh McCown, Bryce Petty, and former second-round pick Christian Hackenberg. Repeat question four. Do the Jets know what they're doing? They have four bodies, not four quarterbacks. It's the Jess, Ron. J-E-S-T. Jess, Jess, Jess. <laughs> I like it. Uh, smartest man in football, Raven safety Eric Weddle says, new Arizona quarterback Sam Bradford, quote, has been paid more for nothing than anybody in the history of the NFL. Is Weddle an economics major or a personnel guru? Well, Bradford holds the NFL record for completing 71.6% of his passes in a single season. Do you hold any records, Eric? Uh, he's a realist, Ron. The truth hurts. <laughs> Speaking of Bradford, he's now signed contracts worth $134 million, yet has never passed for 4,000 yards, nor led a team to a winning season. What do you do to, to not get paid if you're an NFL quarterback? Change your name to Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> uh, win, win five Super Bowls for New England. <laughs> Tampa wide receiver Mike Evans has had four straight 1,000-yard receiving seasons to open his career and is one of only seven players to have at least 4,500 receiving yards in his first four seasons. That puts him up there with Randy Moss, Torrey Holt, Jerry Rice, and Larry Fitzgerald. Where do you put him? Like the Moss and Terrell Owens, he enters a growing fraternity of inflated stats, no rings. Where do I put him? I put him in Tampa at wide receiver. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have Hall of Famer Kevin Green, Hall of Fame voter Jeff Hobson from Cincinnati coming up in the next 60 minutes, so don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark Judge, along with Ron Borges and Rick Goslin. And soon, very soon, we'll be joined by Hall of Fame voter Jeff Hobson of Bengals.com for his choice of the best Bengal not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. As well as Hall of Fame linebacker and longtime friend, Kevin Green, one of the first to ride the wave of free agency in the 1990s. And speaking of free agency, uh, a lot of movement following quarterbacks this month, including Kirk Cousins to Washington, Sam Bradford to Arizona, Case Keenum to Denver. In fact, I think I saw a note the other day said close to half of the league's 32 teams could have different starting quarterbacks to open the season than they had in 2017. And right now, I think the number is 12 with the Jets and Eagles still up in the air. Anyway, Goose, I, I know you like Michigan State quarterbacks. I know you love Kirk Cousins. But $84 million guaranteed for a quarterback with a losing record and who hasn't won a playoff game? Can you explain that one to me? Clark, you must have really hated Jim Plunkett before he won the Super Bowls the Raiders. You know, if, if you're not a Unitas or an Elway, a quarterback needs help. He'll get that help in Minnesota that he didn't get in Washington. A running back, quality receivers, and a slam-the-door-shut defense can put a ring on any quarterback's hand. Here's the only difference, uh, Gooseman. Good analogy. Zebal Davis paid Jim Plunkett squat to come to the Raiders, <laughs> not $84 million. Squat. So repeat, Thank that's a, that's an economics term that I learned when I got my MBA. Squat. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're making here. Squat. Squat. Yeah, hey, exactly. uh, hey, I also noticed this, guys. Uh, something called the Alliance of American Football League is going to kick off in 2019 uh, in February after the Super Bowl with none other than Hall of Fame general manager and friend of the show, Bill Pullian, overseeing it. Now, Goose, this sounds a lot like an idea he mentioned to us, a developmental league, in fact, a couple years ago. Uh, the league has long needed a developmental league. You know, baseball has a minor league system, so do basketball and hockey, not football. Young players need to play at game speeds in front of crowds to get better, and this league does a poor job of giving them that opportunity 
unless they arrive as high draft picks. You know, this uh, development league is a necessity, if nothing else, for quarterbacks. But the NFL is going to have to get behind it financially to make it go. Ron, we've got about 20 seconds. Do you think people want developmental football in the spring? Uh, look, I, I think depending on where they put the teams, you put in Birmingham and, and uh, you know, Austin, Texas, people will go. If you put in Boston, they won't. Yeah, yeah, me, I'd rather see the Red Sox. Anyway, well, we'll hear more about football. I'd rather see the Yankees, actually. We'll hear more about football, period, when we continue with our college football series, which is coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Man, you can't make this stuff up. ESPN this week released its top 20 athletes of the past 20 years, and Peyton Manning was third. But Tom Brady, he was 20. <laughs> 20. Now, Ron, you cover the Patriots. You, you want to tell me why a guy who's been to an NFL record eight Super Bowls? Won an NFL record five Super Bowls and been a Super Bowl MVP and NFL record four times. Well, he's ranked 17 spots behind a guy who hasn't been to as many Super Bowls, hasn't won half as many Lombardi trophies, doesn't have nearly the winning percentage, and had a losing record against Tom Brady. Why is that guy 17 spots ahead? Why? Well, because they said top athlete, not top jeweler. He's got a great ring collection, but we're talking about great athletes, you know. And uh, if we're just looking from athletic standpoint, I don't think you'd pick Tom Brady uh, real quickly. Uh, His greatest skills, uh, in my mind, are his mental approach to the game, his tremendous memory, and the accuracy of which he can throw a football. But uh, we're not talking about Michael Vick hitting the corner. Look, they threw him a pass in the Super Bowl. What happened? Clank. Didn't help him. Also win big games. Um, listen, I, I know what ESP sa- ESPN says. It says, you know, it only includes regular season. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, you know what, Goose? I can't wait to see where they put Bill Russell. It only includes in regular athletes. season. What the hell is that? What? That's what they said. It only only includes regular season. So Yeah, Goose, let's not I, include the games that count. Well, also, check this out. <laughs> wow. Tom Brady had a better regular season record and a better regular season winning percentage by a long shot over Peyton Manning. So uh, I can't wait, as I start to say, to see where ESPN puts Bill Russell and its greatest athletes of the 1960s. Now, Goose, ESPN portrays itself as the worldwide leader. But when I see a list like this, I ask, worldwide leader of what? Do you really care? Yeah, I do. (laughs) Apparently he does. I'm getting worked up. I don't care about these lists. If I do a list, I care. Well, anyway, uh, my my guess is the ESPN brackets are more accurate. Than this so-called list, even after last weekend. Jeez, I mean, I... Talk about cooking the books. That's a proper list, actually, for 2018, where everybody's cooking the books in business. They're cooking the books in this. We're only going to count the games we want to count. We're not going to count yeah, the games exactly. that actually count. We had uh, Hall of Fame pass rusher and former University of Florida star Jack Youngblood on to the first hour. Whew, i got to calm down here, Ron. Let me get a drink here. Yeah, go host There's, there's a good down. reason. Um, first of all, we wanted to catch up with Jack, and, and second, we wanted to revisit his alma mater, uh, with the University of Florida part of a series leading up to the draft where we look at the top college producers of NFL talent. And this week, that college is the University of Florida, which produced a Hall of Famer and All-American pass rusher in Jack Youngblood. But other than Jack Goose, let's go down the list of former University of Florida football players who are or were of historical significance. So where do you want to start? Well, how about the NFL's all-time leading rusher, Emmett Smith? You know, he Good started place. for each of his three seasons at Florida, became SEC Player of the Year in 1989, 
Skipped his senior season, turned pro, selected by the Cowboys 17th overall in the 1990 draft. Went on to become the most productive running back in NFL history. Three rushing titles, eight Pro Bowls, both NFL MVP and Super Bowl MVP. The man did it all. Well, I mean, last week, as you know, we talked about the strength of the Texas pipeline to the NFL, Goose. And Mm -hmm. uh, you were talking to us about that. And, And the strength was the safety position. What's the strength of the University of Florida? Well, clearly it's running back, and not just because of Emmett Smith. You know, former Gator Rick Caceres won an NFL rushing title in the 1950s. In fact, he was the last player to win a rushing title before the Jim Brown era when he won them all. Fred Taylor, Neil Anderson, John L. Waynes became pro bowlers. Eric Rett became a 1,000-yard rusher. You know, Waynes was a fullback, as was James Jones, another pro bowler. Both had 70-catch seasons in the NFL. And Ron's guy, Mike Gillisley, Came off the Florida campus, scored five touchdowns for the Patriots last season. He did. Ron, he might mention Mike Gillisley. That gets me back to Tom Brady at number 20. Pack me in ice, please. Jeez. We're going to pack you in ice and then put you under the ice. (laughs) Oh, my God. How did you do that? Anyway, Ron, it says here, it says here, go ahead, go ahead. What do you want to say? No, no, I'm good. Go ahead. We're we're moving on. Gators, I think. Let's talk about those Gators. Oh, yeah, all right. How about those Wolverines from Michigan? Ah, Tom Brady. Um, it says here that Florida has had 47 first-round draft picks in its history and that that's more than traditional powers like Oklahoma and Texas. Well, does it surprise you that with all those first-rounders that only two of Florida's Gators have produced careers worthy of the Hall of Fame, and that's Emmett Smith and Jack Youngblood? Yeah, obviously to a degree, sure. But if you ever watch some of their defensive players try to tackle people, you wouldn't be that surprised. <laughs> uh, you know, they're one of the teams that some coaches, including Bill Bel- Belichick, uh, used to tell me that uh, they have such bad tackling techniques historically that they have to be retrained when they get to the NFL. <laughs> uh, you know, and if you're f- actually, if we're fair about it, it's really only 45 first-round picks because you can't count – uh, Rick Grossman and Tim Tebow, they were the kind of reaches not even a Lasto man would have attempted. Don't knock Tim Tebow. Don't knock <laughs> Please. Tim Tebow. Well, hey, well, another surprise to me, and, and, you know, other than Tom Brady at 20, jeez. Another surprise is the lack of quality quarterbacks. You were talking about quarterbacks. The school was produced. And Flores had some great college quarterbacks, Spurrier, Werfel, and, yes, Ron, sorry, Tim Tebow. They all won Heisman trophies. But that success has really never translated to the pro game. And in a state that – some warm weather, speed receivers, passing game, whatever, you name it. Where are the quarterbacks? I mean, it's like they spent too much time with Mickey and Disney World. <laughs> well, well, I think in Tebow's case, he was really a fullback playing quarterback. You know, they were running a glorified wing T down there, you know, and, with, and, and he was running it without the wing, which is a problem. Uh, but I think, uh, to be honest, I think speed receivers may be part of the problem. Uh, you know, they often had so much speed uh, out wide, that, and they often – uh, even against the top teams, got so much separation that the quarterbacks right. never really had to develop the kind of pinpoint accuracy to succeed in the NFL. You know, uh, you guys have all been to Florida in the wintertime. The windows are always wide open. But in the NFL, <laughs> those windows are closed pretty tight. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Goose, quick now. Any other position of, of note here? Yeah, pass rusher. You know, Youngblood, of course. Uh, Trace Armstrong's in Hunter Sack right. Club. Kevin right. Carter was an NFL sack leader. Javon Curse went to three Pro Bowls. Uh, Carlos Dunlap, a couple years back, had 13 sacks for the Bengals. They can rush the quarterbacks. They can run the ball. They just can't throw it. Well, we haven't talked about Michigan State yet, but I'm sure the Spartans' Rick Goslin, their data, will explain that NCAA tournament loss to Syracuse here. No? Goose? Uh, okay. Where are you going, Doc? Where are you going today? Well, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers made free agent Ryan Jensen the highest-paid center in NFL history this offseason. The Jacksonville Jaguars made free agent Andrew Norwell, 
the highest paid guard in history. Kirk Cousins, of course, established a new benchmark for NFL quarterbacks with $84 million in guaranteed money. Cornerback Jermaine Johnson received a staggering $45 million in guaranteed money. And wide receiver Sammy Watkins signed a free agent deal that guaranteed him $30 million. Offensive tackle Ron's guy Nate Solder signed a $62 million contract, and defensive tackle Star Latuli agreed to a $50 million deal. So notice anyone or any position missing? Yep, there's nary an edge rusher to be found among the big money contracts thrown around by NFL teams in the opening weeks of free agency. Quarterbacks and pass rushers are the two most important positions on the football field, so it's rare that the difference makers ever hit free agency. Their teams will pay whatever it takes to keep them. The value of a pass rusher was reinforced by a mistake the Arizona Cardinals made last offseason when they let Calais Campbell sneak into the marketplace. He was coming off an eight-sack season for an Arizona defense that collected the most sacks in the NFL and allowed the fewest yards in the NFC. Jacksonville signed him on the opening day of free agency, giving him a $60 million contract with half of it guaranteed to put some bite in the Jaguars' pass rush, and he did just that, collecting an NFL runner-up 14.5 sacks. Jacksonville faulted from 19th in the NFL in sacks to second on the way to its first division title since 1999. Minus Campbell, the Cardinals tumbled to 19th in the NFL in sacks and sank out of playoff condition. Pass rushers are difference makers, which is why so few of them ever hit free agency. So you'd better draft them because you're not going to be able to buy them in free agency anymore. Not the elite ones, anyway. Well, you know, Gooseman, you, you wonder when you tell that story about Calais Campbell whether the Cardinals uh, personnel staff had available video. <laughs> you know, are they watching the guy play? I mean, you know, you, you, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, um, do you think that the, uh, some team will make that same mistake anytime soon, or do you think that's kind of the, as you point out, kind of a high-water mark, and people are going to, or low-water mark, and they're going to say never again? No, and I think going forward, you're going to see more and more pass rush going in the first round. Those, right. The big guys, the, the quarterbacks that throw it, and the big guys attack them, that's where you win. You're not going to see those guys hit for agency. They're going to get drafted high. Yeah, New England did it with Chandler Jones. He had more sacks than their entire team. You know, when he hey, went there, we've got a motor, guys. We've got to run. We have Jeff Hobson waiting to tell us which Bengals belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And you know what? Maybe, maybe he'll mention former Florida star Carlos Dunlap. I don't think so. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. And if you've been following us, well, first of all, thank you. And second, you know that we're in the midst of a series where we highlight the best players, coaches, GMs, and our owners, not in Canton. So how do we do that? That's a good question. The answer is that we're making stops in all 32 NFL cities and talking to Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions from each of their towns. And we're doing it chronologically. So this week's stop is the home of Five Alarm Chili, which would be Cincinnati, and where we would find Bengals.com's Jeff Hobson's, the city's Hall of Fame representative. Butchie, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be with three Hall of Famers. Uh, thank you very much for... For having me on, I I want to make a point. You're stopping in a town where uh, no no town has had a team longer with fewer Hall of Famers than the Bengals. Uh, <laughs> like Jeff, Jeff Legwald with Denver. You sound like him. <laughs> uh, you know, if it's if it's time, I know we're trying to. I know we're trying. We got a. There's a backlog of of uh, guys, but uh, there may be a ba- uh, the Bengals. It's a backlog of teams. 
<laughs> well, Butch, I'm, I've been waiting for this week's installment for weeks because I do think the Bengals have a legitimate beef with the selection process. In my opinion, there are a couple of very glaring omissions. So who, in your opinion, is the most glaring? Well, there's no question, and you guys know it. It's Kenny Anderson. He's the best quarterback not in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, a couple, a couple of you know, a couple of uh, one-line notes take care of that. Uh, you know, the only man to win back-to-back passing titles in two different decades. Uh, when he retired, he was the only uh, – uh, when he, he retired, he had the all-time record for completion percentage in a game, in a season, and for a, a postseason career. Uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a pretty good legacy. Also the first quarterback ever to complete 70% of his passes in a single season. You forget about that one? Yeah. That's, you got that? <laughs> I got it. Do you? <laughs> well, you throw I me. I need all the help. I need all the help I can There you go. Well, you throw me, Butchie, because I thought you were going to make another presentation for Willie Anderson like you did this year when we thought we were voting for Tony Baselli. So uh, yeah. what happened to Willie Anderson? <laughs> I don't know what happened. I'm a little bit. Uh, you want me to hit Willie right now? Sure. Or, uh, yeah. Let's go. Yeah, through? why not? Okay. I mean. You know, Willie was, uh, they forget the right tackles. You know, I think we've forgotten the right tackles. Uh, uh, I think the left tackles of uh, Willie's, the best left tackles of Willie, Willie's generation have been accounted for, um, you know, except, except maybe for Baselli. But certainly if Baselli gets in, I think you gotta, you got to talk about Willie. I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, the best, best, red, best right tackle of his time. I, I, it, it'd, be hard to, it'd be hard to argue that, that, you know, he ought to have a place in there. Well, Butchie, I, I want to go back to Ken Anderson. I think we're talking about either yeah. Willie or Ken, but I'm talking about Ken here. Um, you know, the, the Raider fans and Ron Borges, who is a Raider fan, he's not a closet Raider fan, he's just an outright Raider fan, they've been banging the drum for another quarterback, Jim Plunkett. Who, and rightfully so. Ken Anderson, and who, unlike Ken Anderson, won not only a yeah. Super Bowl, he won two Super Bowls. So Ken Anderson or Jim Plunkett? Well, that's tough because I, I was home from school on a snow day when the Patriots took Jim Plunkett with the first pick, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. I, uh, I, uh, my father talked me into changing allegiance from the Giants to the Patriots because of Jim Plunkett. Jim Plunkett has a soft spot. You know, I got I got a soft spot for Jim Plunkett, but you can't argue, and you can't argue uh, the totality of the careers. I understand that Kenny didn't win a ring. I get that, but. There's there's too there's too many I think in the Hall of Fame there's an overabundance of good players on great teams and not enough great players on good to marginal teams which I think which I think describes Kenny um, you know I mean if you take it his entire career um, completion percentage accuracy. Uh, Really, where he fits in the development of the modern game. I mean, it was it was the way the way he and Bill Walsh crafted the West Coast offense. You know, made a significant contribution to the game beyond the numbers. Butch, it appears you have forgotten Ken Riley like the committee has. The guy. Oh no! Well, no. Only, he's, only one he's quarterback in history intercepted more passes than <laughs> in his sixty-five. He's never even been a finalist. Why? He's What's sec- going on? Does the fact he never went to Pro Bowl hurt him? You think? I think the fact that uh, that uh, that and also that he played opposite Lamar Parrish, the very flamboyant and um, very great Lamar Parrish too. Uh, you know, Lamar Parrish 
was going to seven Pro Bowls while he was uh, while he was uh, a Bengal, um, and you know it was that's I think why Teddy got all those picks. They weren't thrown toward Parrish, but. Um, you know, maybe we ought to be talking about Lamar Parrish, but Kenny Riley, there's no question he's got to be in just because of the numbers. The interesting thing about Kenny, he had his, he had his, uh, uh, two best, two of his best years, 82 and 83, the last two years of his career at age 35 and 36. And another marvelous thing about Kenny Riley, he never played cornerback until he arrived in Cincinnati. And he was a college quarterback. And, uh, Paul Brown made him a corner, and uh, you know, like you guys, I mean, you can't dispute the numbers: 65, 65 interceptions. Those things don't go on trees, and he did it, and he did it at the time where he didn't throw. He's, a, he's also uh, uh, Joe Namath's last game as a Jet. Kenny Riley picked him three times, um, Ooh, wow. so it's a uh, uh, that's a guy. I mean, really, the two Kennys are the two glaring omissions. But and then you can get into the Willies. And, you know, I kind of like to make a, uh, a pitch for Isaac Curtis, who, um, just looking at this division, he's got more catches and more touchdowns than Lynn Swan. And he's got, uh, and he's got more yards per catch than John Stallworth. And, um, you know, if, if, if he was coming out of college today, he'd still be a top five pick. He really, I mean, Curtis, people forget what Isaac did because he didn't throw the ball back then, but, he basically, I mean, it's not the blow, it's not the Mel Blunt rules. It's the Isaac Curtis rule because Paul Brown didn't want Mel Blunt keep mugging Isaac Curtis. So I mean, this guy was like one of the. I mean, this guy nearly made the uh, U.S. Olympic team for the hundred. I mean, this guy was this guy was not only sprinter fast, world world class speed, and world class hands. Hey Butch, if the Bengals had beaten the 49ers in '81. How many of these guys do you think would be in Canton right now? Great question. Certainly the two, uh, certainly Kenny Anderson, probably Kenny Riley, and uh, that's probably about it. Probably. I mean, I think, but Kenny Anderson for sure. Yeah. Hey, Ron, I'm getting the Willies. Just talk about the Kennys, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, really. Just, <laughs> uh, exactly right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, about... I, but that's the amazing thing is you know the Bengals have been around since '68. And they've got one primary guy in the hall in Anthony Munoz and one minor guy in Charlie Joyner. And, listen, I understand that they, have, you know, they haven't won a Super Bowl. But, geez, I mean, you know, I mean, is a team like, uh, you know, teams like the Falcons and the Seahawks, uh, you know, they've got, they've got twice as many, three times as many, four times as many. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't, you know. I think the Bengals have had a bunch of good, you know, they've had they've had very, very good players down through the years. Well, I'll tell you the, what. Do you think uh, the voters just hate the helmets or what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, you hit it on the head, Goose. You know, the thing you asked me about, you know, about Plunkett. Plunkett won two Super Bowls. The Bengals haven't won any. Uh, that, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, you hate to say it, but it's a small market. You know, it's in the Midwest. People don't see him as much. I think that's going to, especially back in the, uh, you know, now everybody sees everybody. But back in the 70s and 80s, the guys were talking about it. It just wasn't that way. Sure. Yeah, except, but, but you, you talk to Jeff Legwald. I mean, the Broncos have more Super Bowl appearances than they do guys in the Hall of Fame, so he's got a similar complaint, yeah. but from a completely different perspective. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure every town's got a every every town's got a gripe. Well, you know, it's interesting. You think you mentioned Isaac Curtis, uh, Butchie, and I can tell you this: if all the Hall of Fame personnel guys that we've put in there in recent years were running a draft, and we said, okay. Uh, you got to draft a wide receiver. You can have Isaac Curtis or Steve Largent, Hall of Famer. Steve Largent yeah. would be driving out to the airport to pick up Isaac Curtis and drive <laughs> him to wherever they are. You know, I yeah. tell you that. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, right. I mean, he's he's like the one guy on this in Bengals history, the one guy who still who 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 would be a top five pick in any other. Which where you had him, Bill Berge? I don't really know enough about him when he played. I mean, here he was definitely uh, uh, he was on the way here. You know, I mean, he was dominant. Uh, same with Mike Reed. Can you imagine that? Bill Berge and Mike Reed in the mm-hmm. same defense. They were really yeah. good. But, yeah. you know, I think, you know, I think Berge was, uh, you know, he's probably the classic borderline guy. I mean, like I said, I don't know. I'm not that, I, I'd have to go back and research it, but when you talk to the guys from that, there's, there's no question that they think Berge was a. And Butch, when you know, you're a borderline guy and you don't have a ring, we know what that means. Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. But hey. the thing about Bergie, though, the thing about Bergie, he's got a bunch of Pro Bowls, though. Well, yeah, we know, Butchie. It's all Pete Johnson's fault. If you just yeah. ran over <laughs> Dan Buns and got in the damn end zone, you wouldn't have any of these problems. <laughs> That's a well, and, or even if you know, even if the even if the '88 team, even if the '88 team had held on and Lewis Phillips had caught the ball, your you know your your ancestors help you. You know what I mean? They put you back in the limelight even if you're not playing. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think what hurt them, and I think what hurt these guys as much as anything, is when this team went in the tank for, for the 90s. And I think right. that hurt them, too. Sure. Right. Hey, Butchie, we got to run, but thanks for the time. And, uh, you know, forget about the Bengals this spring. Good luck with your Red Sox, okay? Uh, we'll meet it. We'll meet it. But, uh, hey, Willie Anderson. <laughs> Thanks, Butchie. Thanks, See you, Butchie. Thanks, guys. There's Hall of Fame voter Jeff Hobson. Up next, Hall of Fame pass rusher Kevin Green. Just to talk to Kevin. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We've addressed free agency on this show the past two weeks, and for good reason. I mean, it's pretty much all NFL fans are talking about these days, that and, and the draft. But free agency didn't start this year or last. It's no revelation. It began in 1993. And we have with us today someone who took advantage of it in its infancy. That means it's early stages, and that's one of our favorite guests, longtime friend of ours, Hall of Famer Kevin Green. Kevin, been way too long. Thanks so much for joining us. Yep, right on, fellas. How's it going? Terrific. All good. Good. Yeah, all good. Good. First of all, Kev, um, we all know how meaningful reaching the Pro Football Hall of Fame was to you. How has the gold jacket affected or maybe changed your life? You know what? People actually uh, want to hear what I had to say now, which is kind of <laughs> neat. I didn't have that opportunity before I put on the gold jacket. Now people actually listen, which is <laughs> cool. Uh, but, no, it's just it, it's really hard to describe, you know, the feeling uh, of being a part of that elite fraternity, of being one of the few numbers 
there. Uh, 300. How many guys now total in the Hall of Fame? 300 and what? Three, three, 309, is it? Yeah, 309, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really lean number. And, and just to be a part of that, and it's, it's still surreal, even though I, you know, I went in in 2016. Uh, but it's still uh, quite quite surreal and, and humbling. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. I, I, I don't get an opportunity to put on that gold jacket as often as, uh, as I want to now that I'm a coach on the New York Jets staff because you guys know I'm 24-7 hammered down doing things to improve my outside backers, looking at the draft, looking at free agents, and, and so forth. But it is uh, still surreal. I'd wear that thing in the meeting rooms every day, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, you know, trust me. I I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could, but uh, it's just it's hanging in my closet up here in uh, in New Jersey, and uh, and I open up my closet every day and I look at it, you know, before you know, at one time or another, and just smile. So it, it's awesome. Thank Kevin. you. Kevin, you were in the very first free agency class back in '93. You left the Rams to sign with the Steelers for yeah. a three-year deal, paying you 5.3 million. Twenty-five years later, players are getting roster bonuses in excess of 5.3 million. First off, were you born too soon? And secondly, has it surprised you how the money has exploded in this last quarter of a century? You know what? No. Let me ask you a second question first. No, it hasn't really surprised me because I think that's really what. Uh, we wanted to happen. I was a three-year guy. Uh, my third year in the league in 1987 when we actually made a decision uh, to go out on strike and for a number of different things, but specifically for the ability to shop our services to, to different teams after a, a certain amount of time in the NFL and to, to actually sell our service to the highest bidder. And we, we all knew that if we could get that accomplished uh, through striking and eventually decertifying and, and so forth, uh, we knew that uh, you know, the players were going to have a, a better life. Because up until that time, you know, the players, uh, they were really limited as far as their leverage in negotiating their contracts because teams really owned them for the duration of their career. They didn't have the ability to go to team to team to team, and so salaries were you know were obviously down uh, quite a bit. But we all kind of knew that free agency was going to take off eventually, and it was just going to be good for all of us to to shop our wares across the league to the highest bidder. And and I'm not I'm not bitter at, at all. I, I'm I'm happy for the fellas that are making uh, the money that they're making now. I, I, only thing I would say is. I wish they would just remember some of the old heads, you know, that that did walk on that picket line, you know, back in '87, as uh, and lost paychecks, you know, game checks, you know, so that these kids now could be making multi-million dollars a year. I wish they would remember them just a little bit more. Kevin, we know that free agency has been good to the players, but has free agency been good for the game? Well, that, no question. That's, that's that's debatable. Um, it's, it's definitely been good for the players, but you would you would kind of have to say that teams are 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 um, more in a state of flux now with free agency than they were without free agency. You knew players were coming back to the you know in the same year 
the, the following year that, that were there the previous year. Those players were continuing to come back and come back and, and, and they're, they're, you know, there was more of a, a consistent uh, team and unity feel among um, different professional football teams, whereas now uh, teams are definitely in a state of flux. Every year you're you're adding people, trying to bring them up to speed as quick as you can on, on your system, get them on the field, get them productive as quick as you can, and then you're you're losing good players, you know, that you have to make really de- hard decisions about, you know. Uh, so it is very, very debatable whether it's been good for the league or not. Well, you know, you went through it several times, Kevin. Um, what was the toughest decision you had to make? Was it the first time you went out there in free agency, or was there one that was harder than the rest? Yeah, my second time of free agency, let's see, my first time I was going into my ninth year, just finished my eighth year with the Rams, and that was in 1993. I signed that three-year deal that you had mentioned with the Steelers. And then the second time I hit free agency, 9-10-11. So that had been my 12th, going into my 12th season. Um, Coach Cower and the powers that be with Pittsburgh, they had to make a hard decision, you know, and, and, it, and it really hurt me. I mean, I didn't really want to be a free agent and go anywhere. But – they had to make a hard decision on an aging player, I would say. And, you know, people don't really know how much aging players have left in their tank. Although I know I had a lot left, and I proved it when I went to Carolina and signed with the Panthers and, uh, in 19, that would have been 1996 and led to NFL in sacks and first team all pro and all this other stuff. And, but it, it was difficult for me to leave because I really wanted to you know, stay a Steeler. I just didn't see myself sitting on the bench and riding the pine and mentoring a young kid and so forth. I knew I still had some starter years left in me. Was having to move or choosing to move from team to team, you, you know, is it disappointing or is it exhilarating? Uh, and does that kind of depend on what level you're at at your career in terms of age? Well, for me, uh, the first time moving from the Rams to the Steelers was exciting. It was exciting, not necessarily because it was the first year of free agency and, and, and the contract and the salary and everything. That wasn't really what was exciting. What was exciting for me was I was having the opportunity to get back in a position playing outside linebacker in a 3-4 that that I was really productive there at a time with the Rams and, and consequently through a couple of coaching changes here and there, they changed the defense and kind of really, you know, were, were playing me, you know, like a square peg in a round hole kind of out of a position, out of position. So for me, it was excitement to get back to a position that I was productive in. I knew I could play. I knew I could play at a high level, uh, being an outside backer in that three, four. So that was exciting. And then the other one, the next one, Leaving the Carolina, Carolina again. It had nothing to do with money or contract or anything like that. It was it was downright depressing because I really wanted to stay and and be a Steeler. And then I was kind of forced to go to another team because I was reluctant to put my hiney on the bench. I wasn't ready to be on the bench and be a backup. I just, I just wasn't ready and. And like I said, I proved it that that first year when I went to Carolina in '96. So that was depressing. So I've been on both sides of that exhilaration and and 
kind of like the heartbreak of, of free agency. Hey, Kevin, question for you. I, I was in San Francisco when you came in there in 1997. I remember your locker was over there near B.Y.'s, Bryant Young. So, oh, Kevin Green over there, Bryant Young. There were a lot of stand-up players in that section. Um, and I wondered, when, when you talk about leaving Pittsburgh, go to Carolina, you went to Carolina for one year and you were terrific. But then you left, and, and it seems to me, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I think it was a contract dispute, but anyway, you went to San Francisco in 97. But then you go back to Carolina. Why did you go back when it was so difficult to leave the first time? Well, to make a long story short, after the 49 year in 97, um, through cost-cutting measures, the 49ers released myself and Rod Woodson and Brett Maxey, I think, and just a, a lot of guys uh, just trying to trim down salary cap issues and so forth. And really, I had no intention of of really going back to to Carolina. I was a free agent. I knew that. All I really wanted to do was contact Mr. Richardson and kind of explain to him, from my point of view, what went south in in basically 1997 that that caused me to be released and, and, and pick up with the 49ers. I wanted to explain to him, well, you know, my point of view. And I'm a man of principle. I'm a man of principle, and things happen, and, and I ha- I'm a man of principle, and consequently it sent me down the road. And then I signed with, with the 49ers. But So I visited with Mr. Richardson and, and after the 97 season. This probably would have been the off season in 98. And uh, after he listened to me for about 30 minutes, he just flat out asked me, do you want to be a Carolina Panther again? And I said, Yes, sir. I mean, I, I never really wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, come down with me. And he, he walked me down to Dom's office, walked right into Dom Caper's office. He says, Dom, would you like Kevin Green to be a part of this Panther organization this year? Dom said, yes, sir, I would. <laughs> and then <laughs> the rest is history. I finished my last two years as a Carolina Panther and went quietly into the good night and eventually into the Hall of Fame. So it all... I have no regrets uh, about my career, uh, no regrets about the different salaries that I was paid and so forth. And, uh, you know, the people now that are making the money, God bless them. Uh, there's an old saying, fellas, you probably know this. I know I'm rattling, but have you ever heard of the old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side <laughs> sure. of the hill? Sure. No, no, never. <laughs> I have heard yeah. that one. <laughs> well, there, there's an addition to that. I, and it's come from... KG's, Kevin Green's perspective, and it says, well, if you stop what you're doing and stand still, and if you look directly underneath your feet where you're standing, you'll see that that grass right there, that's pretty green, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're speaking with Hall of Famer Kevin Green, class of 2016, the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. You can find and you can find Kevin in the gallery of bus in Canton. And Kevin, we've got about forty-five seconds left. As most people know, you ranked third in career sacks, behind only Bruce Smith and Reggie White. What they might not know is that you spent sixteen years in the Army Reserves and served as a U.S. Army paratrooper. So, level us. What was tougher, leaving the Steelers or jumping out of a helicopter or a plane? <laughs> now, listen. Uh, I didn't want to leave the Steelers, but I thoroughly enjoyed and wanted to pin on those paratrooper wings and jump out of that C-130. I thoroughly wanted to do it. They didn't have to kick me out of the plane at all. I (laughs) I wanted to feel the wind blast, the prop blast on my face. I wanted to see my chute open above me. 
I wanted to do a parachute landing fall, a PLF there on the drop zone. Uh, I wanted my dad to pin on my airborne wings. So uh, there you have it. As always, Kevin, thank you so much. Appreciate the time, and we'll see you in Kenton this summer. You got it, guys. As always, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. That was Hall of Famer Kevin Green. Up next, the two-minute drill. This is Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so Robert, blow that whistle. That's the two-minute warning, two-minute warning. Yes, sir, that means we're just about out of time. So, Ron, let's get started with the two-minute drill. Cornerback Richard Sherman went to Stanford and negotiated his own contract with the 49ers. One clause gives him a $2 million bonus if he passes his physical coming off a torn Achilles before training camp. Any chance the 49er medical staff passes him? Absolutely. Remember, Ron, this is the team that employed Alden Smith. If GM John Lynch and head coach Kyle Shanahan have their say, they will. Apparently, uh, Simeon said uh, this week, a lot of people would kill to be in this spot. What spot's he talking about? Backup? <laughs> I'm not sure, Ron. El McPherson's bodyguard? <laughs> hey, any backup quarterback on any NFL roster. Great pay, no pressure. <laughs> uh, does Paxton Lynch survive the arrival of Case Keenum in Denver? Yes, sir. Keenum needs someone to carry his Microsoft tablet. Yep, the Broncos have already made Trevor Simeon the ro- roster sacrificial lamb. <laughs> Golden Kaepernick keeps sending out video of his workouts. If he tries selling a workout video, what should he call it? Stand and deliver. Get off your knees and exercise. <laughs> NFL executive Troy Vincent said this week the NFL's new catch rule will remain uh, will eliminate slight movement of the ball as a negating factor in a catch. How do you define slight movement of the ball? Well, I define slight as what the NFL did to Tom Brady's reputation. If it's Rob Konkowski, it's a catch. If it's someone on the Bears or Bengals, it's a miss. <laughs> Please. That is true. Will the new catch rule still be a slight problem for officials? It's always a problem when Samantha and officials are involved. There's no such thing as a slight problem when 18 TV cameras are pointed at you. After trading Michael Bennett and Richard Sherman, should the Seahawks lower the boom on safety Earl Thomas, who's in the final year of his contract? No, no. Lose him, and the Legion of Boom becomes the Legion of Gloom. The Cowboys certainly hope so. He's been openly campaigning for a move back to Texas. Charlie Ebersol, son of longtime NBC Sports executive Dick Ebersol, says he's launching a new football league, the Alliance of American Football, on February 2nd, 2019, a year ahead of Vince McMahon's XFL. Will either get off the ground, and will either one fly? They'll fly, but the question is, will United deliver them to Kansas or Japan? My money's on the XFL in those deep WWE pockets. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Jack Yugbud, Greg Aiello, Kevin Green, and Jeff... Butch Hobson for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.